Hello, and welcome to this Ipsos News podcast, which is part of an ongoing series where we get to talk with experts from around Ipsos to explore the topics and themes of their thought leadership. I'm Ainsley Taylor, the Senior Knowledge Manager at Ipsos, and in this episode, I'm delighted to speak to April Jeffries, who is the author of our new white paper called Empathy Awakened, The Power of an Empathetic Organisation. With consumers worldwide becoming more diverse and sophisticated all the time, April's paper outlines the importance and the benefits to brands of creating a culture of empathy and lays out a practical four-step framework for developing an empathetic approach for business. So thanks, April, for joining us today. And it really means a lot to us for you to have given up some of your time to talk about your new paper, Empathy Awakened, which I think is uh, an incredible uh, and actually a vital piece and a bit of a departure from the Ipsos View series because we don't often hear a lot from our quality friends. And so I feel like this is an important moment. Perhaps you could just quickly tell our audience who may not know you as well as I do who you are and, and what you're about. Yeah, so thanks for having me, Ainsley. This was uh, I'm not often on this side of the of the microphone, so I really do appreciate this. Um, my name is April Jeffries, and I um, I'm on the UU Global Qualitative Team. I am the head of our ethnography and immersion business, and I also run our empathy programs. Um, So I call myself an empathy activist because I do think that that's what's missing in the world today, as naive as that may sound. (laughs) There seems to be a bit of a shortage of that in the world today. I don't know if that's my perception. I don't know if that would be borne out by hard data, but uh, certainly how I feel, and I think it's how a lot of people feel. So I think this is a really important piece of work, both for market researchers, we're trying to understand people better, and often we overlook some of these aspects of what drives people's behaviour and how we can engage with them and how we can have better relationships with each other. Well, I think some of it is just really learning how to listen to each other again. I feel like it's just an art that we have lost somehow over the, I'm not sure how or why, but it's just become harder and harder to hear, particularly someone who thinks very differently than you do. Um, but it's more and more important to be able to do that, right? I, I have to ask you about social media. I don't know if you are how active you are on there, but I've been thinking about it a lot recently, um, particularly as I've sort of withdrawn from it a little bit. It seems, from my standpoint, as somebody who listens more than speaks on social media, that it does seem to have roughened the discourse. But is that, do you think, because we're not seeing the listeners, that actually there's lots of silent listening going on that we're not seeing? So, yeah, I think there is silent listening. I don't know if that's good or not. I mean, I think it's, I think at some point you have to express what it is you're hearing, right? So I don't know. For me, social media is a hard one. It's, um, we have all, as we have, everyone has talked about, we're all in our little bubbles. And so we get fed back our, you know, the things we already are thinking, right? And it just gets harder and harder to hear something that's different. I I did a conversation once with, with um, a woman who talked about uh, what did she say? She said, you need to mess with the algorithm sometimes when it comes to social media, right? Click on some things that are completely different than what you normally would click on. And and all of a sudden, you'll see your feed start to change, right? If you do that, it really becomes an interesting tool because you'll start to see what other people are seeing. And, and, you know, I think that's the kind of discourse we start to need is to not just hear people confirm what you already know. Let's 
see what other people are thinking and and you know what you may end up with a i can i can we can agree to disagree kind of place but at least you know what you know how they got there and it's very interesting because sometimes that's hard right i i listen to stuff sometimes that i know i don't agree with and it even starts to make me mad you know sometimes but then i got to take a step back and as it, it helps that you know I run an ethnography team and our job is to listen and to observe and to hear what other people are saying. But um, I have to take a step back and remind myself of that. But it does help to at least get at the, OK, I kind of get how you got there. <laughs> Don't agree with it, but I, I get it. You know, I think that's helpful. I wonder if one of the things we're missing when we look at social media, actually, is that what we're seeing there not always other human beings at least not in a pure sense because our interaction is with the algorithm with the machine intelligence just as much and i've noticed people i know who are smart people who seem to have become in real life i find them very smart anyway but on online i'm beginning to find them quite uh, uh, less attentive <laughs> because there's kind of this strange fusion going on obviously a fusion or a collision between human intelligence and artificial intelligence machine intelligence which uh, at the moment, when I'm developing this theory, I don't know whether I'll ever stand up to scrutiny, but the current mix is that we have intense human emotion, exaggerated human emotions expressed in a very me mechanistic, predictable way. Mm. That's how it feels. But again, that's my feeling. I haven't actually tested this. That's interesting. So, I mean, you know, listen, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an engineer by training and, and I can tell you from the very beginning you know, technology usually advances faster than humans do. That's just, that's pretty much my my opinion, but I think it's fact, right? Technology, it's it's based on the machine. And, and then you put the human into it, and that's when things tend to usually get a little screwy. So so let's just, I, I accept that as reality, and that's going to happen. You know, know that AI and machine learning right now, there's a lot there's a lot of issues with it. I actually interviewed someone who is in charge of the um, diversity uh, council. I'm probably saying this wrong, but she works for Amazon and they are working on, you know, how to make sure their human uh, uh, machine learning stuff is inclusive and, you know, addresses all diversity and issues and all kinds of people. And as we talked, it was like you realized, you know, it's not not that anyone was doing anything purposely, but there's a lot of stuff within the algorithm, within the machine learning that is not right. It's it's not taking you to the right places, right? It's, um, it you know, it doesn't include certain things. So here's an example. There was a, there was an algorithm that was around healthcare, and they were talking about how um, they they wanted to put people who had these different conditions into a special program. Well, the algorithm judged who got into this program based on how much money they spent against the condition, right? So, okay, I spent a lot of money. I, I've had to go to several doctors about this condition, and therefore I've spent so much against it. So they've put me now into this special program. Well, it turns out the people who needed the program were those who couldn't necessarily afford all of the things that, you know, was putting them into the program. So it, it, there's stuff within AI and machine learning that we're still trying to figure out. And, you know, why does that happen? Well, because 
someone who's cash strapped was not part of the decision making, was not at the table when they were making this up. So there's a lot that's in there that we still got to figure out and work our way through. Well, that's right. And again, it's about the, the collision or the mix or the melange of human and artificial intelligence. Because, of course, artificial intelligence is designed by human beings. It replicates our prejudices and our the way the world is arranged today. I think you also move into dangerous territory if you try to design AI to change the world, because, of course, that opens up another another set of, of questions which we might not want to at the moment. Well, and, and I will tell you, you know, as far as you know, businesses and clients are concerned, you know, this new generation, these Gen Zers that are coming up, if you try to if you try to design based on what exists today, you're going to miss them because they are the most diverse group of people ever seen. I'm talking about in the U.S. right now, but but I would I don't know the details about that globally, but I believe they are more diverse. They certainly are more uh, um, social network savvy as we were talking about earlier so they know how to use social media they know how to leverage it they know how to really read it (laughs) they know how to use it to their own advantage and the other thing i would say right now is they know how to protest (laughs) they've learned in the past 18 months how to protest how to you know raise the flag raise the signs against whatever they feel is unfair so any company right now that thinks that they can just design around what is today is going to miss what's coming because it's a different playing field and a different set of rules, in my opinion. Ben Page, who is the new CEO of Ipsos, as everybody will know by now, uh, he's a historian by uh, education. And perhaps this is because he's taking a longer view on things, but his view is that um, we often exaggerate the extent of change. It's really fascinating that you've been through a transition from being an engineer to being an ethnographer and somebody who specializes in empathy. That's not something I would normally associate with engineers. So perhaps you could just talk us through how that came about and and how you think the two things can be connected. You know, I I am a little different in that I, I really do think very heavily with both sides of my brain, which probably makes me a little crazy. But um, yeah, I went to like serious engine. I mean, I was, I went to MIT undergrad. So this was like, no joke, serious engineering background. I did that, to be honest with you, Ainsley, I was, I was good at math and science. So I was naturally led in that direction. But I did it more because quite honestly, as a, as a black woman in the education system, I liked things that added up. I didn't like the loosey goosey, especially if you're going to grade me, right? I didn't like any kind of loosey-goosey, this is your opinion as to whether or not you liked what I wrote or not, right? When it came to school, when it came to school and education, I wanted something that was very clear, you know, is the answer right or wrong? Um, So for me, that worked education-wise. However, I'm also very creative. So I, I sing, I write, I do some other things, right, that are more, again, the other side of my brain. And I think that kind of made sense. If you think about it, where I landed, it makes perfect sense, right? I think we have to 
add some structure and analysis to things, but I also think we have to get underneath that the the feelings and the insights that come from research and that come from doing things like the, like ethnography, which is all about observing people and you know really trying to understand the story and the person behind whatever data there is. So it it may sound like it's disconnected, but for me personally, it actually makes a lot of sense. So would it be unfair of me to describe um, some of the things you're writing about as a form of human engineering? Um, that's one. Th- I think that kind of has its own definition, right? It sounds good. I would love to apply it to myself, <laughs> but I think it has its own definition, right? That that to me starts to lead me down a, a robotics kind of a path. Um, but I think I think there is something to be said for, you know, my thing is, I think ultimately for me, I'm a, I'm a storyteller, right? I, I like telling good stories that help people to understand a world that's different than one that they may necessarily inhabit on their own. So love sci-fi. It's my favorite. I love some good science fiction. Um, but I love a good story. So um, and when you get at the, you know, the bones of a good story, there's structure to that too, right? There's structure and there's science around how that gets told in a way that people feel it. So you may not know the bones, you may not know the structure, but you feel what that person has done. Um, and to me, that's sort of the combination of the two. And it, that works for me personally. I'm not an expert in this, but any great storyteller will tell you that structure is important in a story. And I have to say, having read your paper, I do think everyone's a critic, right? But I think the structure here is very strong in it and it does convey a really powerful story. But I just wonder how much of your interest in this topic and how much of your expertise in this topic of empathy actually stems from your own experiences of not feeling empathised with in the past. Yeah, so that's interesting. So, um, again, you know, I think diversity, it's kind of hard for me to not speak from the position of an African-American woman in the U.S. and now in a global organization. Um, So, you know, do you ever do you ever really feel like you belong? Um, and I think the people that I that have made the biggest difference for me in my life, both in my career and in my personal life, are the people who have, you know, really taken the time to empathize with my perspective, with my experience, and to value that. Um, and so I really try, and I can't say I'm always successful, I really try to do that for others as well. I try to understand, you know, where people are coming from, sort of what their experience has been and what experience they need in order to round that out. Now, some some people may not like that, um, but I think it's, for me, it's important to be able to, to you know, experience things beyond just what what you've had happen to you. You speak very well about the, the power of empathy in the paper as well and there's actually an analogy used later on about building empathy muscle which i, I wanted to explore a bit further because I, I thought that was that helps me to understand it does require effort doesn't it? it do you view yourself as an empathy personal trainer you know are we talking about building empathy gyms here yeah i, I guess in some ways we are right i think it is a muscle i think it's something that okay first of all I'm going to go back to something you said a little earlier, which is around this idea of transitions. And I, 
transitions are hard. They are much harder than what you're trying to get to, which is why change is so slow to Ben's point, right? I think you've got to, you know, be prepared that it's the transition that's going to be painful. It will be because it's taking you out of a comfort zone. And and the first thing you want to do when you're brought outside of your own comfort zone is to try to defend where you've been, right? So I think, um, you know, it starts with this immediate defense of, you know, I'm right. I'm right where I am. And I'm right in believing what I believe and knowing what I know. There's the there's something that's very comfortable about that. And you kind of have to want to expand in order for that to really change. Right. Um, I think what happened last summer was that we we all wanted to change. So that helped. I think we all expanded, whether we want to admit it or not. We've expanded and now we're in the painful part. And some of us, um, I, I always used to say, you know, I can tell my clients sometimes I can tell right where they're going to get to the point in the transition that they're going to want to just go back to what we used to always do, because that was just so much more comfortable. And I know that I get that. You know, my mom used to say, dance with the devil, you know, right. <laughs> just let's just stay with what we're doing. We got it. We can do this. Just stay right here within this place. And when you start to go broader than that, it gets it gets hard and it gets painful. So building muscle, if you think about it at the gym, when you're building muscle, if you really are building some muscle that you didn't have before, it hurts like hell, man. It hurts, right? So building that muscle is is going to be painful. And you have to want to be buff. You have to want to be in shape. You have to want to be healthy in order to put up with the fact that, doggone it, my butt hurts now from doing all those things things when you had me doing, you know, whatever that is. So I do think there is a there is a certain amount of, you know, working out and building muscle that includes, you know, pushing through the burn, pushing through the pain of not necessarily always knowing things, being vulnerable, being able to, you know, accept what someone else is feeling, whether you agree with it or not, just put yourself in their place. It takes building muscle. Yes. I wonder on that particular subject whether you have any practical advice for people because your paper lays out a framework for change. Clearly, there's a link between empathy and change, that if we want to change ourselves, if we want to change our business, if we want to change our brand, if we want to change the behaviour of the people who want to buy our brand, if we want to change the world, we need to be empathetic with the people that we are trying to change. And that could include ourselves as well. You know, we need to you know, understand ourselves better, don't we? We're talking business here, right? So in the end, what we want to do is to create new products, new services, new language, new. And I I do believe businesses are going to take on a bigger role of social justice as we move forward. But whatever that is, um, you know, there's a there's a reason. There's a goal. There's a rationale for us to do this. It's so that people buy our stuff. In the end, right? You want to you want to make stuff that people need, and you want people to buy the stuff that you've made. So, empathy is really—it's not just about doing the right thing and being a good person. It's about—it's—it's. It's, hey, this is business, guys. How do we make stuff that people need, and how do we let them believe that they need it? Right? It's—it's it's pretty much what we have to do as business people. There is a difference between empathy and sympathy, isn't there, which 
is often not completely understood. I wonder if you could just give us your take on that. Yeah, so this is, you know, again, April Jeffrey's opinion, but um, sympathy for me is, is um, sympathy is more about feeling what someone else may have experienced, like having sympathy for what you've gone through. Empathy to me is more about what I was saying earlier, stepping into someone else's experience and then bringing your resources to that to somehow help it. Now, um, you know, it's interesting. I, I think, you know, you might listen to someone like a, a, a Bene Brown um, who, you know, she talks about empathy as, you know, just sit in it, just allow someone else to tell you what they're experiencing and just sit in it. And, and and I get that. And and um, trust me, I, I have two daughters. I've been forced to really sit in their feelings often. <laughs> um, but but I do think from a business perspective, there is an element of, yes, sit in it, try to understand it. Just listen to it without defending, without, you know, putting your own stuff in it yet. And then bringing your lens, your experience, your resource to solve a problem. Um, and for me, that's that's the difference. It's about using those feelings in a way that kind of gets you to the solution of something. A lot of it just sounds like good old fashioned market research, right? I mean, some of this is, it is founded on the, the proper principles of doing market research that you need to listen to people, you don't judge them. You, you don't go in there with a, a set of conclusions that you've already reached. There's a lot of fairly exaggerated or excited talk at the moment about advances in, in the research industry and how technology can change things and our increasing ability to process data and big data sets and social listening and virtual reality and the list goes on. This feels to me like a response to some of that from a quality side in that qual is also evolving. It needs to go to the next level. It needs to develop. It needs to match the growing capabilities on the quant side. Is that a fair assessment? It is, Ainsley, and I think, um, so So to be clear, you know, I, I talked about using both sides of my brain. I think we need both, right? We need to develop the data processing. There's more and more data. There's so much out there right now. It's really hard to keep up with it, right? So I think we need to, we need to push and push on the technology and the data that allows us to capture all of what is going on right now, which is, to your point, a lot. The other piece of that that we have to do together is around, and you're right, it's just the good old-fashioned humanness of things, right? I think we all remember it, but I do think it's easy sometimes to get sucked up into the numbers. Trust me, I've done this myself. I get sucked up in the numbers, and I got to go back and really force myself to add the human story to those numbers, to tell what it is that we're seeing with the numbers, and to make sure that we've understood that data at its core. Um, because sometimes you can come to conclusions from from data that um, doesn't always get completely to the core of everything. And I think the way the world works now, I mean, things are very fragmented, right? We, everything's very personalized. And so understanding the individual is, is hard, right? <laughs> uh, but it's what we want. We all want 
you know, my specific thing for me based on my experience, which used to be, you know, oh, that's the majority or that's the segment or that's the big bucket that we've put you into. And now things are changing. So I think we really have to make sure that we do both, that we understand the, the huge amounts of data that are out there, that we understand the various stories that they're telling and that we understand those stories at their core, that we really get at what they're trying to tell us. And that's a beautiful segue into my next question, actually, which I was going to pull out a line from an early section of your paper, which is action without empathy is meaningless and empathy without action is directionless and soft, which I liked. I mean, I would say this, wouldn't I? But one of the reasons why I like working at Ipsos, and I think I would recommend Ipsos to all of our clients, of course, I would, is that we are a kind of full spectrum agency. We can use both sides of April Jeffrey's brain. We can use both sides of Ipsos's brain because we've got all the, the data. We can get numbers for you. We can also tell the story. We can understand context. We can, well, we can put it into context. We can humanize that stuff. When you say action without empathy is meaningless, felt like I would probably, if I was writing that, I might have gone a bit further, actually, because action without empathy can possibly be dangerous, can't it? It can be wasteful. It can be risky. You know, if you're just acting without really any, any consideration as to the impact on others, then things can be very, very bad <laughs> if you're not careful. That's a really good point, Ainsley. I wasn't even taking it that far when I wrote that, but it actually can be. Um, and I think you know, we have to we have to be careful because I think sometimes we get very caught up in activity, right? Look at all the wonderful activity I have done. And then you look back and go, but what have I what have I really done? And so so as we move, um, even in some of our our diversity efforts here at, at, at Ipsos, um, and I use that as an example, we've done a lot of activity over these past few years, the past few months. Um, it's time to move into what's the impact? What is the real impact of what you've done? <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it, you got to go back and take a look at that because to your point, you could have had a lot of activity that, you know, what I wrote was that did nothing, right? You're you know, the hamster on that wheel that's running pretty doggone fast but not going anywhere. Um, but to your point, you know, you might have done some activity that if you haven't gone back and really assessed and analyzed – might have actually done more damage than good. How you define empathy? So effective empathy takes you out of your world and into the world of another. Thank you, April, because you've helped us bring us into your world today in this conversation, and I appreciate that very much. Let's talk about the love story because um, it's interesting you say that. I have a um, I have a good friend who's a black woman who is dating a white man, and what she said to me was the, you know, she she fell in love with this guy when he, you know knew nothing about black women and their hair, but he noticed that she was sort of particular about sleeping on this silk pillowcase or something like that. And he happened to be out and he saw these silk scarves and he bought her this silk scarf because I, I noticed, you you know, you're always talking about, you know, sleeping on your hair. So here, I bought you this scarf. I know you like them. And she was like, just the idea that this guy, you know, knew nothing about this, but took the time to understand that about me kind of that kind of touched her heart a little bit. So I think, you know, empathy can, it can be soft and it could be, you know, the heart of the love story, right? But it, if you just take a minute to, to understand and feel what other, what someone else is sort of going through, it matters. It matters very deeply um, to somebody else. But that, that wasn't empathy without action, was it? Because he did act, he did. He acted, he acted, yeah. 
And he didn't even know he was doing it, right? He just was that's just the kind of guy he is. But um yeah, he acted. Well, I think that's a beautiful note on which to wrap up, actually. <laughs> Let's do a love story at the end, Ainsley. It always works. <laughs> Thank you very much, April. I've, I've, I mean, I, I do mean it sincerely. I've really enjoyed this conversation and uh, I'm sure our listeners will, will feel the same way. And this is such a rich area. And I just, yeah, I would recommend to anybody the Ipsos News white paper, which has just been published called Empathy Awakened, The Power of an Empathetic Organization. It's a must read from us. It gets five stars in the Ipsos Knowledge Center. And I just wanted to say thank you, April. Well, thank you so much, Ainsley. I have so enjoyed this conversation. 